We will be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this evening. If you need a Bible, Jim is happy to help you out with one. Over the last couple weeks in our study, Peter has laid out a pattern that we have yet to highlight because we looked at different aspects of it in different weeks. But I want to quickly review and highlight that pattern that he laid out because it's going to apply to our passage of Scripture this evening as well as continuing to look at this letter. And the pattern lays out as such. Time and time again, Peter speaks to our identity. He then talks about the reality in which we live and then carries that through to what our responsibility is. Identity, reality, responsibility. And we can see that just in the text that we've studied so far in 1 Peter. The first week we hardly made it past verse 2, where it looks at all three members of the Trinity and their hand in our glorious salvation. And all throughout this casting of our identity, our identity as saved children of God, chosen, Peter chose to highlight God's strength, God's strength in the element of our salvation. As Patrick talked about just this weekend, not to say that we did not have a choice, not to say that we were not participating as actors. There was certainly responsibility on our behalf. But Peter urged us to identify as those that were chosen by God, those that had been saved and preserved and his strong hand was on us. Then he goes in to speak of the reality. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the reality is our salvation is secure. Our salvation is sealed and it is done, but we have not received the fullness that we will receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're saved. There's nothing else that can be done but the fullness of our salvation as we are glorified and we look face to face with Jesus, that will be revealed. It's almost like standing at a hot dog cart that only takes cash and checking your bank balance on your phone. Like we have more than enough money and we can see that it's there, it's ours, but it might not do us the full good that we want it to do right now. Our inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. It can't be touched. It's perfect. It's undefiled. But we're still living in the now. That's the reality. And the reality is the now is going to be full of trials. There's going to be suffering. And it makes sense that Peter would highlight that, writing to a persecuted audience. But those difficulties are the very means that God uses to purify our faith, to test our faith, to reveal our faith to us. But then Peter goes on to speak about our responsibility, a call to holiness. And he said that 
that holiness, that call to live set apart was in part grounded or connected with the girding up of the loins of our mind and, and being sober in our thoughts. And that's what I call a mindset. A mindset, a worldview. How we process the reality around us. We're all experiencing the same temperature, the same room, the same words right now. That is reality. That is objective. Your perception of that, how you're thinking about that, will determine how you respond. If you walked in here with the perception that Christians are liars or fakes or just plain old kooky, then maybe you're taking this opportunity to just rest in a nice air-conditioned room. However, if you came and, and, and you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and you trust God to reveal Himself through that, then that's an altogether different mindset. And that mindset filters the reality, and therefore your responses are going to be very much different in this time. Identity, reality, responsibility. And then oftentimes Peter caps things off with an example of what that responsibility looked like. And we saw that last week when he started with our responsibility as Christians, as brothers and sisters within the body of Christ, to, to be without sin, to set aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. That was just one example of this call to holiness. Certainly it's larger than that, but Peter narrows in, he said, but, you know, as you chew on that, really, really focus on this, and perhaps that will be a good test. Perhaps that will be a little representation to see how you're doing. Let's just look at this sliver of your thought and speech towards your brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. And we're going to see much of the same thought process repeated as we pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there is clearly an identity statement. Christ is a living stone. But we also are living stones as we find our identity in Christ. Now, what are these living stones here to do? What's the reality of what's being undertaken here? What exactly is God up to? Well, he's building a spiritual house. And time and time again that we've seen in 1 Peter, his focus always has one hand in the eternal, one hand in the spiritual, and another hand on the ground. Because that's the way we have to live. That is how we translate our 
identity in Christ, our eternal, incorruptible, living hope that we have reserved for us in heaven. How we translate that reality through our experiences and interact with what it is that we face today, be that good, bad, or indifferent. So we identify as living stones just as Jesus was a living stone. And Christ is using us as stones to build up a spiritual house. And as such, we are a holy priesthood with the responsibility of offering spiritual sacrifices. I love the imagery that Peter uses. And it's going to continue as he speaks of Jesus as the chief cornerstone. But there are so many truths that we can grab just from that picture of us as living stones being used to build a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Let's work backwards through verse 5. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ before we start to talk about any of the spiritual sacrifices that we are called to make, we got to be darn sure to remember that it is only by the righteousness of Jesus and in the power of His strength and in the power of, the, the, the power of His Holy Spirit within us that it can be acceptable to God. We can't get that backwards. Because Peter's going to talk a lot about our responsibility. And he's going to talk about it more and more as we get into the center section of this book. And so I really want to emphasize that nothing we can do, nothing is acceptable outside of the fact that it was made acceptable by God, or it was made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ in us. But we're to offer up spiritual sacrifices as a holy priesthood. We could do a long study com comparing the, the priesthood we see in the Old Testament, in the nation Israel. But we can also save some time and boil it down really simply. The priest's job was to go before God. And even they, only one priest could do it once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. Because God was so holy and they were so broken and sinful that it had to be done with great care. And only when necessary to atone for the sins of the people. But we're a holy priesthood. We have been made new by the righteousness of Christ, that we can come before God continually, offering Him, offering Him what precisely? Spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. I want to highlight five New Testament examples of spiritual sacrifices. 
we see our body being offered up as a living sacrifice. Romans 12:1 it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Oftentimes our mindset is believers has a certain amount of rightful disdain towards these flesh suits that house our soul. They cause us a whole lot of problems. And we know that when we shed these filthy, slimy things, that things are only going to get better. Better thoughts, better knees, better hairlines. It's all going up. But the reality is as much as many problems as our flesh gives us, we still have an opportunity to use our physical bodies in service to the Lord. We see the sacrifice of praise in Hebrews 13. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. God never tires of honest, real, sincere, heartfelt praise. Nor could we ever exhaustively deliver it. When our heart and our mind is in the right place, when we have the proper mindset, we should relish every opportunity to give thanks and praise. Also in Hebrews 13, we see the sacrifice of good works. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We see two things in that 16th verse of Hebrews 13. To do good, good works. And the sacrifice of our possessions and to share. I oftentimes think of our resources in three categories, time, talents, and treasure. Us and King Solomon, we both only had 24 hours a day. We each have different and varied talents, and we each have different and varied material blessings. If our heart is right, because we, we, we can't overlook the reality that God is more pleased. He prefers obedience over sacrifice. None of these things, if not done in the right heart, is pleasing. Because then it's not done in response to Jesus. It's not done being filled by His Spirit. It's going through the motions. It's doing many of the things that caused the Jews to walk away from the relationship that the Lord desired to have with them. But let's go back to this imagery. I said five. I'll give you one more. The sacrifice of service. Romans 15, 16. 
that I, Paul, might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. God has ministry for every one of us. And not just ministry alongside what we're already doing. Yes, there is ministry that we have within our workplaces and within our homes. But God has ministry for the sake of ministry. For each of us, in, in concert with that time, talent, and treasure He has given us. He has ministry that He desires to use us in. And that is not only one way in which we offer up a, a spiritual sacrifice, the sacrifice of our service, of our obedience to that call. But through the Holy Spirit, that might be acceptable to the Lord. Verses 6 through 8. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by, by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Peter walks through Scripture. He was very familiar and studied in the Old Testament. It speaks of Jesus as the chief cornerstone in Isaiah 28, the chief cornerstone in Psalm 118, and a stone of stumbling there in Isaiah 8. But out of those verses, we can walk away with the very clear picture that there is no riding on the fence. Jesus, to you, falls into one category. Precious or injurious? When we look at Christ, the chief cornerstone, we look on Him and we see something to which we can't hold tightly enough. Or we find something that we just can't push away fast enough, hard enough, complete enough that we would callous that part of our heart that is determined to hear from Him until we yell at it long enough to be quiet. There is no in-between. And I'm so fascinated by the imagery of Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Because people argue about the particular word that is being referenced there. And there's really three main options. And, and I don't want to pick which one I think is right because they all shed such beautiful truths about who our Lord Jesus is. The first we see is a cornerstone. And it is, as you would imagine, the first stone that you put down in building a structure there on the corner that it would not only join two walls, I don't like that guy at all. You stop that. Sorry, I couldn't quite hear the All right, Siri. 
Well, now that I know this is being recorded, let me try again. We see Christ as the cornerstone, which serves as the foundation, because any of you who have sat in an old chair know how important the four corners are. If one corner is off, everything else is topsy-turvy. The other beautiful thing about a cornerstone is it joins two walls together. And is that not what Christ has done in Jew and Gentile alike brought together in our common Messiah? The second option would be the keystone, which is the last stone that's put at the top of an arch that supports the whole structure. And when we look at Jesus as a keystone, we see that he's the highest stone in the structure. And something I thought was amazing about looking at Jesus as a keystone is that is the stone that is necessary to make an opening by which people may enter. And isn't that exactly the ministry that Jesus fulfilled with his life and then death on the cross? That there would be a way for us to enter into the Lord's presence. That there would be a gateway. That when we wanted to approach the presence of God, it wouldn't be a massive wall. But yet because of that keystone, there was made for us a way in. And finally, the third option would be a capstone. And a capstone is the stone on the very top of a pyramid. And if you think about this, a capstone is the only stone of that shape in the entire structure. When we look at Jesus, he is wholly unique compared to us as living stones. Yes, he came as a living stone and so did we, but none of us are exactly like Jesus. He is unique. Now think about that very top piece of a pyramid. That piece determines the shape of the entire structure. The angles that are represented on that piece are then reflected all down throughout the walls as we look to take on Christ's characteristics, as we desire to reflect Him as imperfect pieces, all working towards the pinnacle example that He has set for us. And the thing I really like about thinking of Jesus as a capstone is when He returns, the building is complete. Now we'll read verses 9 and 10. And before we read, I want to say we lose, we're in a difficult situation to understand what Peter is doing here because we cannot identify with the difficulty of being a Gentile believer saved by a Jewish Messiah in this time. by virtue of the length of time that Christianity has been known to us. 
and the generations of Christians that have preceded us. Being saved by Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, is not foreign, absurd, very weird. But, but to the Gentile of this day, to be saved by the God, the Messiah of the Jewish Old Testament, would have been crazy. Like, that God was for Israel, not for me. And so then we read verses 9 and 10, and it says, But you are a chosen generation, chosen like Israel was chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We see Peter here do another one of his favorite, one of the things I've come to love most about this epistle, and that in his structure, Peter reminds us that what we do for God always follows what God has done for us. So there he closes in verse 10, who once were not a people, but now are a people, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's what God has done for you already. Those are past tense, or those are current tense. You are now the people of God. You have now obtained mercy. So now looking forward, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. When having gone to great lengths to again talk about our identity in verses 4 through 10. We're a holy priesthood. We're a royal priesthood. We're living stones coming to Jesus, the ultimate living stone. He says, now, now here's the reality. I beg you. I beg you to look at the world this way. You are sojourners and pilgrims. This is not your home. This is not your home. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So much of our reality, if it is not grounded in the eternal weight of the sacrifice that has been made for us, the spiritual nature of what the Lord is doing in and through our lives can be drowned out by less of the flesh. I mean, that's a really long list, and it includes a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with sex. We read that, and we like to put that in a box. But anything our body wants, all the ways we interact with this world, those are fleshly lusts. This body, which is not eternal, this body, which is going to burn, 
this body which resides on this planet that is not your home, the things that it, it wants, probably, let's, let's not. Not just because it's not a good idea, but because those very interactions, they war with your soul. They war with your soul because when our physical decisions, the priorities we set and the things that we do have spiritual and eternal consequences. having your conduct, verse 12, honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So identity, we're living stones. The reality, you're visiting here. This is, this is not your home. You're passing through. What's your responsibility? Have your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles, those that are not of God. They're going to come after you when they speak evil against you as evildoers. Christians are crazy. People make some crazy claims. Also, people claiming to be Christians have done some crazy things, and that doesn't help. But we're going to get a bad rap. Because Jesus got a bad rap. A really bad one. So why would we expect anything different? But it says, they may, look there at the end of verse 12, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You're the only Bible some people will ever read. And that could be the thing that gets them saved. How else would you glorify God in the day of visitation when he returns? You're going to glorify God or you're going to tremble in the face of his judgment. And here Peter is saying, live this life as though this is not your home, that you are passing through that you are one piece of a larger spiritual reality, spiritual house being built up, that you could offer spiritual sacrifices, praise, good works, the offering of your body, the offering of your possessions, the offering of your time, that even those who accuse you of evil might look upon what you're doing and come to faith in the Lord. That's our responsibility. And then Peter does the thing where he says, okay, let's go one step further. Let's, let's, let's take a really specific example. Just have your conduct, honorable among all people, but let's zoom in with a magnifying glass and Take this for example. Therefore, 
Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In light of the reality that we're passing through, that we're passing through, that what we're doing is a spiritual work, and we want to do it in such a way that even those that would accuse us of evil may be drawn to glorify God at his return. Peter says, well, along those same lines, one expression of that thought is to submit to government, to be good citizens. We see in Romans that God ordains government. Good, bad, or indifferent, God ordains it. And that makes sense because any government is better than no government. God hates chaos. He hates anarchy. Our God is a God of order. So even a bad ruler we see is superior to no ruler at all. But it says that we submit ourselves to every ordinance of man, ordinance, institution, government, for the Lord's sake. Because honoring the government is a way of honoring God. It's a way of trusting that what God says in his word is true. And I don't think it's, well, I know it's not coincidental that this follows shortly thereafter. Peter reminds us that you are sojourners and pilgrims. You're just passing through. This is not your home. You know, I have had the opportunity to travel internationally to places with governments that I could not imagine living in. China, Taiwan, imagine even going to North Korea. We have a little bit different view when we're visiting those places because it was not my home. <laughs> The Chinese Communist Party is like really crazy, but it wasn't our right vacation. And then I came home. I followed the rules. I tried really hard not to get arrested. And I came home. Not to say that believers should be agnostic to government. Not to say that God hasn't called many to respond in faith in a political way. But we can see how quickly, especially as Americans, things can get twisted. Because although we are blessed enough to to be living in the fruits of, of what was a, a Christian nation. 
what was a Christian nation is, is very different than what Christ is, is calling us to now. It would be... It would be like saying 2161 South Hillside is a school. It's not a school anymore. It's the same address, same walls. This is not an elementary school. We might have the same borders. We might have the same constitution. This is not the, the Christian nation that it used to be. And I find it challenging that, that Paul, Peter, I almost made it a whole Wednesday not do that. I find it challenging that Peter says, For this is the will of God, in verse 15, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Bondservants of God. A, a, a servant, a slave, by choice for life. They say that the best way to test if something is an idol is to pay attention to the reaction when it's taken away. And I've had to ask myself, is the Constitution an idol for me? Because I might have the belief that as a citizen of this nation, I have certain rights. And I can get very offended when I feel that those rights have been read a different way or interpreted a different way or taken from me. But then I realize that that's me holding on to a document and not a savior. I know many are afraid that one day the government might come and ask them to do something that they're very opposed to doing. Give me that firearm. Put this needle in your arm. God still calls us to obey government as long as it is not asking us to do something that is in direct opposition to the Lord. And so in both those cases, what, what would I do? How would I feel? I don't know how you feel about firearms or vaccines or personal property, but if the government comes and says, well, your guns are mine now, or you must take this vaccine, or the next vaccine, or the three after that. Or the deed to your house needs to be handed over. 
that's really one of those tests that shows what we're holding on to. Do we just identify as people traveling through when we don't like what we're seeing or what we're experiencing? Or is that really our identity? Is that our mindset? Is that our reality? Do we so identify in our salvation that when the, the things that we currently experience change, when we feel slighted, attacked, cheated, wronged, persecuted, that's when God really calls us to look at our faith. Why are you upset if this is not your home? Why do you feel cheated when you've already received my mercy? Why do you feel unfairly persecuted when you're receiving much of the same persecution that I received while on this earth and, and, and patiently endured and am using to, to build you, to shape you into that image of Christ in you. Paul, oh, now we're done. Peter is going to... <laughs> Peter is going to spend much more time talking about submission. And submission really comes down to trust. It doesn't matter what political party or what survey group you ask, the amount of trust people have in the government is declining. So as Christians, our response should not be to, to invest more in a government we can trust, but to invest in a Savior that we know we can trust. Submission requires trust that the outcomes that we often fill in in our minds are not the outcomes or the means or the end goals that the Lord would have. Because it's really easy for us to want to build physical houses. It's really easy for us to want to do the most Jesus-filled version of 
our plan is possible. Because it is, it is so difficult and it, it feels almost crazy to have a pure, eternally grounded mindset that Paul calls us to have. Peter, oh, we're... Filtering. I'm going to set that aside. When we look at our identity and, and our reality and our responsibility, as I meditated upon that, I noticed that there, there, there seems to be one thing, one instance in, in, in my life that, that, that stands aside. And, and that's times like this, times of corporate worship, where all those things perfectly align, where I'm doing what I know I'm meant to do, <laughs> where the actual circumstances unfolding around me are in line with who I am eternally. And so my challenge is as we close in worship, meditate on the lyrics. E even when I don't see you, you're working. Even when I don't feel you, you're working. Because as we are called to submit to governments, we remember that if his history is, is any test, Jesus is much more concerned with the restoration of an individual than a political system or a geographic area. So Lord, Father, first, I, I want to thank you for the privileges that we do have. You decided where we would be born and when we would be born. And Lord, right now, we, we do have such a, such a great freedom. But Father, I've, I've read the end of the book. I know that sometime between now and your return, things will change. Father, I pray that in your long-suffering, that that change wouldn't be any sooner than necessary. Father, that we would take advantage of all the, the freedom and the opportunity and the privilege that we have. But Father, I also ask that you wouldn't allow the enemy to use that privilege to deceive us. Father, don't allow our flesh, our desire for security and comfort to 
cling to the wrong things to save us. Father, don't allow our desire for... I mean, just just freedom in making our own decisions and our own choices to lose sight of the fact that our bodies belong to you. Our very bodies, our life. Father, show us what it means to just hold on to you and the salvation and the inheritance that we have. Hold on to that so tightly and so boldly that it just leaks out in such captivating ways here throughout our week, that it would leak out in ways that would draw people that would uh, speak evil against us, that would draw people that would come down on us. Father, we want to glorify you and we want to build your kingdom. And we pray that your kingdom would come. Amen.